we have grown so accustomed to the cross that I believe it is hard for us to understand what the cross meant in the first century and how deplorable it truly was. Today in our religious culture, the cross has been turned into an icon for for many, many years. We're used to seeing pictures of crosses. Uh, You may have driven through various towns across the country where you will see a large cross on the side of the road. I know, like, I think I would drive through Texas and there was like an enormous one on the side of the freeway. It was just huge. Uh, and, and, and we're used to seeing those kinds of things. We see crosses placed on tops of many church buildings. Uh, jewelry has a cross on it. And, and through all these things, the cross has become very sanitized. I think to fully grasp the image of the cross and to be able to understand how deplorable it was, uh, I think we have to, in many ways, consider our own capital punishment system to try to get a better sense of what the cross meant. Uh, Today, in our country, 33 states uh, use lethal injection as the means for capital punishment. Eight states use the electric chair and five states use the gas chamber. Can you imagine in our society driving down the road and there being this really, you know, 10 foot statue of a gas chamber, you know, there on the side of the road or driving down the road and there's this enormous electric chair or the electric chair placed on tops of buildings all over the places or or people wearing jewelry that has lethal injection needles, you know, for their for their jewelry. You get a sense of what the cross meant in the first century. It was shameful. It was deplorable. It was despicable. It was something that people didn't want to talk about just as much as we don't want to talk about capital punishment and speak about the electric chair or the gas chamber or lethal injection or things like that. The cross was shameful. And most importantly, you would never proclaim a message of hope about a person who was executed by our capital punishment system. That's the idea of the message of the cross, is that a message of hope is being proclaimed about a person who was crucified. And that is the essence of the problem that the Apostle Paul is dealing with in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Here in this scene, I hope you will have that idea undergirding your mind as you listen now to what the Apostle Paul says in regards to the cross. And it brings, I think, human wisdom and understanding to what the Apostle Paul is saying when he speaks these words. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. 
But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now get a sense of what the Apostle Paul does here. It's in a world that we've talked about in the Corinthian church and in the days of Corinth there in the first century, you're living in a culture and a time when slick presentation and polished oration reign supreme. And we spoke last week how that is our culture. That content doesn't matter, but presentation is everything. And that's the world that Paul is entering as he comes to the city of Corinth. And you will notice that the Apostle Paul here in verse 18 is just striking the dividing line, the true dividing line of where people fall in the world. That the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God. God to those who are being saved. You're either in one of those camps. It is either foolishness to you or it is the power of God that brings you to salvation. There's no alternate ground. There's no middle ground. There's no no, kind of alternative to that. It is simply the matter of the fact that it is going to be the basis by which those who are perishing will say that kind of message about somebody dying on a cross is absolutely nonsense and foolishness or it will be the power of God to those who are being saved to prove his point you'll notice in verse 19 that what the apostle Paul does is he quotes from Isaiah he quotes from Isaiah 29 uh, and verse 14 and as we've always talked about context in quotations is important that the authors of the New Testament are never just drawing uh, a partial phrase or sentence out and plucking it from its context and recycling it, but that the message of what that author was saying in the Old Testament matters to the New Testament author. And, and such it is here as well. The context of Isaiah 29 is particularly important. In verses 11 and 12 of Isaiah 29, you have a context of people who do not desire to know God. I may remind you for a moment of Isaiah 29 where uh, it is the, the picture there of the person who is handed the book and it is the word of God and they say, well, I can't open the book. And then to the other one to whom the book is open, they say, well, I can't read. Uh, They don't desire to know God. They don't care to seek the things of God. And Isaiah is speaking about these people. They don't want to know God. They don't desire God. They have no concern for God. And then the next sentence in verse 13 is one that we know pretty well. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. and In vain they worship me. And then the next line is this in verse 14. So here's what God says he's going to do. God is going to destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. This is God's response. If you're not going to know me, you don't desire me. You do not care. And he's just vainly coming before me, speaking words that appear to be godly, but your heart is far from him. Here's God's answer to that. He's going to bring down the wisdom of the wise. He's going to thwart the discernment of the discerning. And this is what the Apostle Paul is putting forward is basically then the message of the cross. 
The message of the cross is this. God is doing exactly as He promised He would do. You say, well, what did He promise to do? He promised to thwart the wisdom of the wise. He promised to destroy all that humans thought would be wise and lofty and smart and discerning. God says, here's what I'm going to do. You think you're so smart. You think you're so strong. You think you're so independent. You think you have things figured out. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to thwart all of that. And the Apostle Paul comes along and says, the message of the cross is the means by which God does that. What God is doing through the cross is He is destroying any kind of human pretension that would rely upon self, that would depend upon human ingenuity, human wisdom, human knowledge, or human strength. You say, here's what the cross attempts to do to you, and what the message of the cross is about is destroying any stool that you would stand on before God. The message of the cross completely eradicates that. Which drives at the heart of the problem that the Apostle Paul is going to talk about for these four chapters. It's really a sub-theme that we're going to see as you look at this book to the Corinthians. It's a sub-theme that really goes through the whole of the book. And it is really the sub-theme of all humanity is that our problem is is that we are self-centered, self-glorifying people. And the message of the cross is the intention to destroy that. To rid ourselves of self-centeredness, to destroy any kind of self-glorification. And the cross itself then is every effort then to do that. And so this is the message that God is giving. And so in verses 20 and 21, now he's going to exemplify that with three rhetorical questions. Verse 20, verse 20, where is the one who is wise? And say, okay, now what's he mean by that? When he speaks of wisdom here, he's not talking about true wisdom like in the book of Proverbs. Because you can read that and go, now where's the wise? And you say, well, I was reading the Proverbs and it says there's wisdom there and the fear of the Lord. And I'm, he's not talking about that individual. He's talking about a Corinthian definition of wisdom. And in the Corinthian culture, you were wise and you possessed wisdom when you had the ability to understand Understand and articulate a worldview that attempted to make sense of life. You see that very much in the Greek life is what they're doing is articulating. Here's where we came from. Here's what afterlife looks like. Here's our worldview whatsoever. And so anyone who attempts then to make sense out of life, sense out of death in the universe, they would say that if you were able to explain it, then that meant you were able to control it. Very much the idea of, of Greek wisdom and Greek philosophy. That's why you see them trying to explain all of those kinds of things and the things that they wrote things that they said and taught and so here is paul saying okay so you think you have this world view you have this great articulation of how you can explain the universe and you can explain life and you can explain death tell me in all of that human wisdom how you were able to discern god's plan of redemption through that Where were you able to sit back in all of that knowledge and figure out that it was going to be the cross that would be the means of salvation? And I hope that you'll see again, as I'm going to probably put my finger on many times, the Corinthian culture is our culture. We do the exact same thing. If I can define it as a worldview, here's my perspective, here's my wisdom of life, death, and the universe, now I control it. 
Now I'm in charge of it. Now I can define it. And so then I have no need for God. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, so you think you're wise. How does that wisdom then, how does that earthly wisdom, how does that worldview work in explaining the ways of God? How does it draw you closer to God that you now know Him? Or know of His ways or know of His plans? And of course the rhetorical answer is of course it doesn't. Where is the wise? The wise does not stand at all before God. In a similar way in verse 20 he says, how about the scribe? A couple of translations will say, where is the scholar? That is a little bit misleading because we're not talking about the academic, but we are talking about someone who was an expert in the law of God, the way we understand it in the Gospels. Where is the scribe? The one who knew the law of God in and out. And so here is the Apostle Paul saying, you could be a biblical expert, a, a theologian. And that wouldn't have revealed the way that God was going to do this. I mean, you certainly see that as you even studied the Old Testament and trying to grasp what exactly is God going to do? How does redemption going to play out? How is this all going to happen? We have words of that the prophets didn't even understand the things that they were saying. Even the angels are longing to look into these things. That the plan of God was something that he would have to reveal as chapter 2. We'll talk about later on in explaining God had to reveal his mind. You were not going to be able to divine it or figure it out by your wisdom or by your studies or by your knowledge. You weren't any better off. Verse 20. Where is the debater of this age? This would be a very big deal to the Corinthians as we've talked about because polished oration and being able to speak and spin people around with by using your words and great eloquence was such a big deal. Well, how does that help you in understanding anything of God? It doesn't at all. And so what here is what the Apostle Paul is doing is destroying these false systems as he tries to get people to consider how did that help you discern the ways of God and the plan of God. Now that is so true today. As I was reading this and thinking about, it seems that everybody tries to find a platform to articulate a particular worldview by which now they can control it and be in charge of that. I mean, not only do scholars do it, talk show hosts do that. Here is the worldview. And if you don't see the world in the same lens that I see it, then you are ignorant, you are wrong, you are foolish, you are an outcast, you don't deserve to live. I mean, you get all kinds of pretty venomous responses to this kind of worldview that I have a worldview that you should obey, that you should follow, and that you should keep. And I want us to consider then what the Apostle Paul drives at here in verse 20. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? What God says here is that everything that the world values is brought to nothing before the cross. The cross just disintegrates that and says, you think you would have come up with that on your own, by your own strength, by your own knowledge, by your own wisdom, by articulating some kind of worldview. Do you think that was going to be the way it would happen? You can't get there on your own. And I think that's important in our culture that I want you to hear. Because our culture says the exact same thing, that if you had a particular philosophy, a particular knowledge, or a particular understanding, that that then would draw you closer to God. And if you just understood things like this, that's how you find your God. Or really, in our world, we use this spirituality. 
If you just did these certain activities, if you thought these certain ways, if you accomplished these certain tasks, now you have a proper worldview that draws you closer to God and you've obtained, obtained a higher level of spirituality. And I hope you see the apostle just blowing that up. He's just wrecking that all together and saying, choosing some kind of particular worldview isn't the answer. That's not your hope. That's not how you're coming closer to God. It's always, you know, every four years. That's certainly the case. Every four years we come through this election cycle, you know, and it's going to be, this will be the candidates that's going to save the day, change the world. It's all going to be better. We're going to put everything to right now, putting our hope in some human as if they have the power to just fix all of earth and it's now going to be heaven. It's all going to start in January. Let's all get excited. And we're told that every four years, I've finally been around enough to go, you know what? It's going to be the same thing. It never changes. It's not going to change in the slightest. And here's what the Apostle Paul said. You you think human wisdom is going to solve all the problems. You think that's going to be the answer. That's going to solve the issues. That's going to bring you closer to God. That's going to be the solution. He says that doesn't do that at all. And consider... And where Paul is going to definitely end up in this letter, you get out to chapters 8, 9, and 10, worldly wisdom and the ways that the world is thinking in terms of its worldview, the way it articulates those things, its philosophies and concepts, are so extremely idolatrous. Not only does it not draw you to God and does not bring you to a new spirituality or bring you into the presence of God at all, but how often these platforms and these worldviews are just simply, you have this greater spirituality if you have a better health, eat different foods, do certain exercises, be more tolerant, save the planet. I mean, how many different mottos exist of this worldview of now if you adopted this worldview, now things would be completely different. I try not to go to the grocery store, but I tell you, every single of those magazines that are there as you go on the checkout lane, I mean, it's all 10 steps to something better. (laughs) Everything is, it's just going to be all better if you just thought like this. If you just made that change, that's going to be it. Go to the bookstore, aisles upon aisles of books. And if you just did this, this is all worldly wisdom that is highly idolatrous. Because you are putting your hope in your own wisdom, in your own strength, in your own ability, in your own understanding of the way the world operates. If I just simply would figure things out on my own, if I could just get to a faraway mountain and meditate and be in some kind of Zen, I would now be able to figure it out. If I could just silence the room long enough, I could hear God telling me how I ought to live. None of these things are in the scriptures. And this is what the Apostle Paul is blowing up. In fact, I love the way that he words this here verse 21 for since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom okay here's God going it was my wisdom to ensure that the world would not come to know me through those agencies you are not going to know God through those means Our world stands on its head and says, yes, you will. 
Sure you will. Buy this book. Make this change. Do this thing. Do this kind of activity. Have this worldview. It's going to be it. But notice then what he says with that in verse 21. And so here's what it does. It pleased God. If you color your Bible, color the word pleased. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. God made a plan that in all of your wisdom and all of your strength and all of your might through all of these articulations of philosophy and worldviews, you would not come to God. You're not going to find him there. You're not going to achieve some kind of higher spirituality. You know, later on in history at the end of the first century, especially into the second and third centuries, that was the Gnostic play. You can have a higher experience with God, a greater knowledge if you do fill in the blank, if you believe. And they had all of these constructs. And First John is written to go, no, you have everything you need right here. You're not going to find it any other place. It's not going to happen through worldly wisdom and knowledge so that it pleased God to make it through the message of the cross. Through the message of the cross, then God made this happen. So God made the wisdom of the world foolish in that worldly ways do not bring a knowledge of God, nor will it draw one closer to God. And that that was the design of God. That the very plan of God is that we would not depend upon our wisdom. We would not depend upon our strength. We would not depend on our understanding. But rather we would forfeit all of those things. Make God to be our center, our rock, our help, our anchor, and our confidence. Rather than depending upon something that is driven inside of ourselves. And that's what he's telling them. It's not within you. And it's not within somebody else who now has great oration or wrote some book that if you would just read it, you would understand it. And now with that, consider verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Now, what's the Apostle Paul getting at? Why is he driving that way? Jews demand signs. It's one of the things that I think is sometimes troubling when we read the Gospels and you'll see people, they'll say, show us a sign. And Jesus is always like, no. And you're always like, well, wait a minute. How many people would believe if you just did a miracle right now? Let the heavens open up. God says, this is my son. Light shines down. You know, it's all good, right? And sometimes we struggle with that. Well, why not just do a sign? If they want to see it, why not? And here the apostle Paul even puts his finger on it and says, they want signs. And it's important to recognize that what is at stake is not that these are people who are truly asking for a display of God's power because they're truly seeking after God. That's not it. You see, we saw that really many times in the Gospel of John, where Jesus would actually do something like the feeding of the 5,000. And then the next day they come back and go, feed us some breakfast, yay. And Jesus like, you didn't get it. 
These are not people who are submissive and honestly seeking so that they could follow God. Show us a sign that you're truly from God and we're going to go all in on with you. That's not the idea. The problem that they had is that they were putting themselves in the driver's seat. They were going to be the evaluators of Jesus. Perform a sign so that we can evaluate you and that we can test your claims. And if you are who you say you are and what we think you should be, then we will go ahead and follow you. And so in such cases, what the individual is doing is setting himself or herself up as God. You're saying, God, you perform for me. You do something for me, and if you do it for me, then I'll follow you. So do something to show me, and then I'll be able to follow you. And so we set ourselves up as judge and evaluator, rather than recognizing that Jesus is God, that he is the judge, and he is the evaluator. Why Jesus has to say no in those instances is because by saying yes and yielding to those requests, he would be doing nothing more than turning into the genie in the bottle who everybody who comes along show us a sign. He goes, okay, let me grant you your wishes. He's not that. He's the Lord. You don't tell him what he's supposed to do. You don't come up to him and go, well, show me a sign and I'll believe. Jesus goes, okay, that's your problem. We submit to him. And that's what's happening here in this description. And what I think is particularly fascinating about that is it doesn't only represent the Jews, that it certainly represents humans today who reject God. Because this is often what is expected. The, some of the, the, the atheist, the unbeliever will say, well, God has to do something for me as part of the condition for me to follow. Sometimes people will fall away from the Lord, that they'll turn their back on God because they'll say that God must do something if he wants me to follow him. These are the stipulation of my terms of acceptance. And if you do the things that I ask you to do now, you'll do it. And so you'll hear things like, well, God has to heal my wife or heal my child. God must fix my marriage. He must do something for me. And only if he does fill in the blank, then I'll follow That's what the Jews were essentially doing. If you will just do this one thing, then I'm going to follow you as if we are the gods and he must capitulate. And so Jews seek for signs. And that is certainly represents a vast majority of people who stand against God because they say God must do something for me. And in that they're putting themselves as God. The other side of the coin, he says there in verse 22, Greeks seek wisdom. They don't make the conditions exactly the same, but rather what they do is they create structures of thought so that they maintain their delusion of being able to explain life in the universe. These are the kinds of people who are the academics and the scientific and the powerful, the philosophical, because here's what they will do. They will say, God, if he exists, must fit into my philosophical worldview and thinking for him to be acceptable to me. Here's my worldview. Here's the way the world ought to operate. And if God doesn't fit into that, then I reject him. That's probably one of the greatest notions that exists. What's the one of the greatest arguments that atheists use? Well, if there is a God, why is there suffering? See, I have my worldview. Here's, here it's articulated. If there exists a divine being, there ought not be any war. There ought not be any suffering. There ought to be anything wrong. Since there is suffering and there is war, therefore there must not be a God and God then is rejected. Because he's not part of my worldview. 
He's not part of my structure. I get to determine if God is acceptable to me. I get to say, this is the way life, death, and the universe ought to be. And if what you tell me about God doesn't fit my view of the way things ought to be, then I reject God. That's what the Greeks are doing. Remember when you have the Apostle Paul, when he's going around preaching. What is perhaps the biggest obstacle when he's speaking to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, that everybody loves what he's saying, and then he comes to something that is outside of their worldview? The bodily resurrection of Jesus. And they go, no. And that's it. No. We, we, you know, come on back and teach us. He hits the resurrection. They go, no. Not going to do it. Don't buy in. I don't accept. I hope you consider that when Paul speaks of both of these groups, both of these groups are in a place of, again, self-centeredness. It's my wisdom, it's my strength, it's my understanding, and I have the right to declare if God is going to be my God. And so what does the Apostle Paul do? Notice it now in verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So here's what Apostle Paul says. I didn't come to you with flash. I didn't come to you with style. I didn't come to you with all of those things that humans would proclaim as wonderful. Remember back in verse 17, because he didn't want the message of the cross to be emptied of its power. So what does he say that he comes to do? He preaches Christ crucified, and that's a problem for both groups. It's a problem for the Jews. It's a stumbling block to them, because to them, how can God's Messiah be crucified? I have a certain expectation and conditions of what it means to follow God. And their expectation of God was that Messiah would certainly kick out the Romans, overthrow all those things. And set Israel up as the, the new political power head of the world. And how can you possibly say that the one who is the Messiah, king and ruler, was killed by capital punishment through the gruesome cross? Could not accept. And he says it's foolishness to the Gentiles. Well, why is that the case? Same problem. How can you proclaim to me that this Savior has come to forgive sins and now sits at the right hand of God and raised from the dead and rules over all things when a human government executed him? That's foolishness. If I can kill him, then how can it possibly be that he's God? And you see the crux of what he's dealing with. Both groups have this worldview of how things were to be in regards to who God is, in regards to what life, death, and the universe was all supposed to look like. And here is this picture that the Apostle Paul gives, and he says, But to those who are called, the cross is a display of the power of God and the wisdom of God. And notice that Christ is the answer to both groups. To the Jews, he says, they wanted signs. One of the things that Jesus is going around saying, I'm only going to give you one sign. Remember, in one text of Matthew, he calls it the sign of Jonah. Here's the sign I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you just one. My resurrection. 
The cross would be the ultimate sign and ultimate display of the power of God through the cross and that death and resurrection. You want a sign? There's no greater sign than the cross. And so this is the Apostle Paul gives. You want an answer to both groups? Here's the answer to this uh, power and these signs that you're looking for. Look at the cross and look at the resurrection. By the same token, the Gentiles, they desire wisdom. And notice that the Apostle Paul says to the Greeks who desire wisdom, Christ is the wisdom of God on its fullest display. There is no greater way to look at the wisdom of God than to stare at the cross and just simply sit back and go, Oh my, I cannot believe that that was the plan of God from the very beginning. That the plan of God was that he would create a creation that not one single individual would follow him, obey his law, or do as he says. And before the creation of the world determined that he would come to earth, give his life, allow his life to be taken by the very creation that he made, and then raised from the dead three days later. And to those who do not want to believe, that is utter foolishness and a stumbling block. But to those who will hear that message, you stand back and go, wow, I am stunned that God would do something like that. In fact, you'll notice verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What the world writes off as hopeless weakness of God, God says is proves to be stronger than any human strength. And what people look at the scriptures and look at the message of the cross and the word of God and they say, that is utter nonsense. God says, my wisdom trumps yours completely. His foolishness far exceeds the brightest of the brightest wisdom that has ever come out of human minds and human matters. That is the awe that we're supposed to have before God, is to look and go, I am amazed at the plan of God. I am amazed at the wisdom of God. I am amazed at the power of God. Look at what He has accomplished. No one could fathom this plan. We have said those things in our own various conversations where you speak about the scriptures and go, we know this is inspired because we know human minds couldn't have come up with such a thing. Who would have put it like that? If I'm Peter and I'm writing this thing, there's a whole lot of erasures and deletions I'm doing like that, all walking on water, seeing and denying three times. We're taking all that out. Here is God's full wisdom on display, full power on display. It is amazing what we look at. It is words that you could never believe. We read books, you know, and you read Harry Potter and you go, okay, fairly interestingly, mildly amusing, not life-changing. And how stunning it is for something as big as this, that every word has tremendous power. Every word exudes the wisdom of God and the power of God. Now let me pull back out as we conclude then and consider our context. Remember 
that chapter 1 is opened with, Chloe's household has told me that you guys are fighting. You have divisions among you. And this whole thing that he's working on here is solving this very problem. And here's the Apostle Paul laying these foundations to deal with a congregation in which we see all kinds of strife, all kinds of fighting, all kinds of division. We read all kinds of problems in that letter. How is this an answer to that? How is the Apostle Paul building this to help us to keep from fighting and keeping from division so that they would be of the same mind and be of the same judgment? I hope that we would grasp in thinking about what he's doing here is calling for them to understand that the only way that congregation and us as a congregation can ever be united is when we fully abandon our worldview fully abandon our personal wisdom and personal strength to be fully dependent upon Christ. You have this worldview, he tells them. You think you have all of this wisdom, all of this understanding. You have everything all figured out. You're going to love later on when the Apostle Paul, he, he writes to them, like, oh yeah, you guys are so wise. You guys are so smart. You're just, you know, you got super apostles. You all are just brilliant. I wish we could be as smart as you. And you know he does that with great sarcasm. And he's building this foundation here early on about that. You cannot be beholden to these worldly wisdoms and worldviews and think that that is of the utmost importance. Division will exist and fighting will continue when we choose to make ourselves God and think that we are the ones that call the shots. That's the problem that they have here. We're in charge. We're God. God must meet our demands. He must meet what I think He ought to be doing. And if He won't do what I want Him to do or fit in my vision of what the world ought to look like, how He's supposed to operate, I will not follow. And consider what the Apostle Paul is saying. Has God ever done anything that fits in a worldview or in a personal knowledge way? That you go, oh yeah, I knew that was going to happen. God is doing that over and over again. We have Genesis running concurrently right now where we see God doing that very thing. It's not Ishmael, it's Isaac. It's not Esau, it's Jacob. God is always operating so that you will not use your worldview, your politics, your way of thinking, your philosophy, your way of perceiving the world and thinking, I've got God figured out. No, you don't. It won't get you any closer. And for us then, fighting must stop and divisions must not happen. And they will not happen when we choose then to not make ourselves God and recognize that these things are not about us. It's not about doing what is good for us. It is recognizing who God is. To sum up what the Apostle Paul is doing here in chapter 1 is that consider that the proclamation of Christ crucified is in its very core a message of submission. Christ crucified, Him giving Himself in the face of all worldly wisdom that doesn't understand it, 
was the ultimate display of God's submission that He chose to give Himself for us. The proclamation then of telling people about Jesus being crucified tells us then that our life must be completely about submission to God and submission to others. The proclamation of Jesus crucified, it must be about submission to God and submission to one another. And by doing that, we are then able to admit and recognize that the weakness of God is far stronger than our strength and that the foolishness of God is far wiser than our wisdom. How dare we ever stand before God and tell Him the way things ought to be as if we understand that we have a proper worldview, that we have some kind of wisdom that God somehow is missing or lacking. That kind of arrogance is what puts us out of submission to God and leads to all kinds of divisions and fighting. So he's building a wonderful foundation of submission to God and ejecting worldly human strength and wisdom. Will you live your life that way? That's our call to you this very evening. That's what the message of the cross is about, is that it defies our wisdom and it defies our might and it defies our strength so that we would depend exclusively on the power and the wisdom of God. Depend upon His knowledge. Depend upon His ways. I love Isaiah 55. I loved when we went through Isaiah 55. You need to forego your ways. Because God's ways are better. His ways are far better than our ways. And His thoughts are far higher than our thoughts. And I hate how that text gets misunderstood. Oh, His ways are so much higher. His thoughts are so much higher. So we can't understand. That's the exact opposite of what He's saying. He's saying His ways are so much better. And His thoughts are so much higher. And ours are useless. So you need to exchange them for His ways. His wisdom trumps ours. His strength trumps ours. Will you submit to Him with all of your heart tonight? Will you turn away from sins? Will you eject worldly wisdom from your way of thinking and adopt the wisdom of God? I hope it encourages you to be in the Word of God more regularly because the only way to know the wisdom of God and the only way to see the power of God on display is in these very pages. That's the only way to reject worldviews and world wisdom and become what God calls you to be. Will you come to him tonight? Won't you come now while we stand and while we sing?